right. Okay, so tonight, or on this episode, our very special guest is Dr. Joseph Sacrin. I like to call him Dr. Joe. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he is a gun violence survivor. He is a trauma surgeon at Johns Hopkins University. He is an activist. He is a phenomenal human being. Mm. I would like to go so far as to call him my friend. And I'm very... Uh, I hope. <laughs> yes. I'm very excited to have him on our little show. So thank you, Dr. Joe, for being here with us. Thank you so much for having me. It is absolutely my honor. And I am so glad to be on with my friend, of course. And, and you've just, you know, what you and educators across the country have done has just been so impressive. And I just, I, I love, um, you know, the continued kind of cohesive, like effort of being able to unite all of us in this, you know, important movement, of course, mm -hmm. that is, I think, the talk of, of, of what's happening in America right now. Amen to that. So before we get into your advocacy and your work in medicine, I would like to just kind of get some background on where you grew up, um, you know, who who you were pre-Dr. Joe. Yeah, no, I, I thanks for asking that. And, you know, it's interesting. I always tell my students uh, that we all have a story, right? And kind of that story drives us to do the things that we do. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm no different. Um, you know, I was born as the son of uh, immigrant parents that came to this country. You know, I think as, as many other folks in, in search of, you know, the hopes and dreams for a better life. And when I think about, you know, my family who really had very little and put themselves through, you know, my dad put himself through college and became an aerodynamic space engineer. My mom's a teacher. And I think one of the things that they realized is that education was so important. And so despite like not having a lot, like their focus for us was like to make sure that their kids, my siblings and I got educated. And it was just, you know, tremendous to have two people in your life that like you were kind of like, we were the central focus, like everything that they did, they did for us. And I think Sarah, you know, um, things really kind of changed uh, during my senior year of high school because that was really kind of the moment where I think you know, as most families in, in Northern Virginia, um, you know, would probably, uh, especially at that time, never expect is to get a call one evening that their son has been injured. And, you know, when they got that call and they ended up coming to Nova Fairfax Hospital, initially, you know, they were thinking, okay, he's been in a car crash, you know, something else must have happened never in their wildest imaginations did they even think or fathom that the surgeon was going to come out and tell them that their son was shot in the throat 
And that's what happened. I, I, was a, I was a senior in high school. I was 17 years old. I was a healthy high school student. And I went you know, from being this healthy student to collateral damage after I was nearly killed when a random fight broke out and a guy pulled out a gun and started firing to the crowd. And uh, that, you know, really kind of was a turning point in, in kind of, you know, both my personal and professional path. So maybe I'll stop there and let you, <laughs> a lot of information. So I have about 8,000 questions. Um, before we get to um, college and career, if we could stay with um, what happened to you, what, what were the weeks and months like after you were brought to the hospital, released to the ho from the hospital? Did you have physical therapy? Like what were the extent of your injuries? Like whatever you're comfortable talking about. Yeah, it, it's such a good question. So uh, let me just back up and say, you know, I went to Nova Fairfax Hospital where uh, it's in Northern Virginia, right? It's the level one trauma center there. And, you know, I was in the hospital for, you know, a little over a month. And then when I was released, uh, you know, I had num a multiple injuries. I had a, I had a, a ruptured trachea that they had to put back together. And I also had a tracheostomy tube, which is essentially you know, uh, a tube that, that goes into your airway that provides a secure airway. And I had a uh, paralyzed left vocal cord and you may be able to hear it a little bit of my raspiness. And uh, I had an injury to one of the big blood vessels that called the carotid artery that runs blood to your brain. So my injuries, you know, were pretty significant. And, you know, initially when I, I left the hospital and I got home, it's, you know, of course, dealing with the physical injuries, but also, and I, I don't think I really appreciate it at the time, also dealing with kind of, you know, the, the mental and the emotional trauma that happens when you experience something like that. And I think, you know, as I, you know, often remember, there was just one moment when um, I was, uh, you know, it was like not long after I'd been released from the hospital, I was standing in the bathroom and I was looking at the mirror and I had these like beet red scars up and down my neck and, you know, I had a tracheostomy tube and like, you know, I, I at that time I used to think, you know, of those tracheostomy tubes, those like commercials that you see, like really old people who were like longtime smokers that, you know, end up needing them. And I think, you know, well, what I didn't notice was my father was standing in the corner and I think, I think my dad saw kind of how devastated I was, you know, by looking, you know, at me and, and he came in and he did something I'll never forget. He said, you know, what happened to you was terrible. Um, but you really have kind of two options. You know, one is you can feel sorry for yourself, which I think is tough love, especially from an immigrant dad. <laughs> but the second is, you know, you can take this horrible incident and turn it into something that's positive, that impacts the lives of other people. And it was that moment where I just was really inspired and, and realized that I was given a second chance and I wanted to be able to kind of overcome, you know, the physical, mental and emotional trauma to be able to 
hopefully translate this opportunity um, for others so that they can also, you know, potentially have uh, a second chance at, at life and at a meaningful recovery. So did you want to get into medicine prior to your injury? No, I mean, I think of myself, you know, there's this like Brad Paisley song that says like at 17, it's hard to see past Friday night. And I always <laughs> think about that. So I, I think that was me, right? I'm like, you know, living in the moment, had no idea what I wanted to do in life. But when that happened, I think things became really clear because it was a very kind of concrete, you know, pragmatic way for me to give other people a second chance was become a trauma surgeon. And, you know, maybe you can save someone else that's been shot in the throat. What I didn't realize at the time was that, of course, like that work is so important, right? And the work that we do as clinicians is just, I just, to be able to take care of, of someone else who's critically injured and to be able to have someone else trust you with their life. I mean, it's hard to put in words like what that feels like and, and what that means personally. But I think that what I realized as I went down this professional path was that it's not just about the work that we do at the bedside. And that's really kind of what pushed me to think, you know, what I call beyond the bedside, where, you know, we're thinking beyond the trauma center, beyond the operating room, because the reality is that the best medical treatment is often prevention. That's, that's true. Okay. So did you take time off between graduation and going right to college? Did you go straight into school? Yeah. So uh, I was lucky enough to be in the Fairfax County School District, which as you may know, is, is one of the top school districts in, in the nation. And um, I was also very lucky to be, you know, you know, have parents that like were very involved in, in my success in my career. And what we ended up doing was um, get being able to be homeschooled. I didn't rejoin my senior year class until the spring, partly because I still had to trick in. And I think my parents were pretty worried about sending me back, but I was homeschooled and caught up with all, everything that I had missed and was able to rejoin my class in the spring. Now, because of what had happened and I was still, even after I was like left um, the hospital, I was undergoing multiple surgeries to remove scar tissue, um, you know, out of my windpipe. And I had to pretty much stick around the, uh, you know, Northern Virginia vicinity because of those procedures and stuff like that. So I applied to one university, which is George Mason. Okay. And uh, it turned out to be kind of the best experience and decision that ever happened. Um, not because of, you know, just the proximity to home, but, you know, the education was top notch and the diversity of the university was, you know, something that I never could have uh, ever imagined. And so that's how that senior year kind of ended. Okay, so as a senior English teacher, I'm going to say that was pretty bold to only apply to one, to one school. Because <laughs> I usually advise my students not to do that. Because, you know, obviously you lucked out. But if you put all of your eggs in that one basket, 
doesn't always work out that way, but clearly. Right. And I'm not recommending that, but here's, here's, <laughs> here's, here's what I'll say is that I didn't have any other choice. Right. Um, so, you know, I mean, it was one of those things where, you know, what, when you don't have a choice, you just, you right. do what you can. And like, you know, the backup was like, you know, maybe I'd go to community college and then transfer. I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I, I think what you're saying is spot on. Like that's not, I'm not, <laughs> if there's students out there that are listening to this, that's not the, that's not the lesson to be learned from this discussion. No, but I mean, clearly it, it worked at, worked in your favor. Um, mm-hmm. So you proceeded through your undergrad, went to medical school. Did you do medical school at the same university? And no, so George Mason doesn't have a medical school yet. Okay. Um, actually, what I did was uh, I ended up, um, so uh, let me just kind of back up and say that during, um, during college, uh, I uh, uh, became a firefighter. I was very much, actually, oh, wow. I, I joined the city of Fairfax Fire and Rescue Department initially because I was going through like the medic EMT program because I was like, you know, interested in medicine. But it happened to be at the city of Fairfax um, that you had to be both a firefighter and a medic. So I went to fire school for six months. Wow. And I think my, my, my parents were a little bit worried that I was never going to go to medical school. I, <laughs> loved, I loved it so much. But I ended up, um, you know, applying uh, for a, um, this unique program between Columbia University and Ben Gurion in Israel. And um, so I went to that program, which was in addition to kind of the basic U.S. science curriculum, it incorporates stuff like disaster medicine, refugee healthcare, and so forth. And as you, you may know, Israel has, you know, some of the best um, just kind of, you know, concrete medical programs and mm-hmm. this kind of unique collaboration with Columbia was amazing. And so I got to spend, you know, a few years there and that really kind of um, helped broaden my, my skills in a lot of different ways. Wow. That's awesome. I went to Israel when I was in college for like, 10 days. I was there with the birthright Israel. Yeah, I was yeah. the first group to go. Wow. Which feels like a hundred years ago. Yeah. Now you're aging yourself. <laughs> I really am. I'm a hundred. Um, <laughs> okay. So you had all of this training in Israel, you know, medical school, you do your residency. How do you end up at Johns Hopkins? Yeah. So it's, it's a, so yeah. So let me kind of paint this picture. So, you know, I come back. So before we even get there, like I had a chance to train. So I did my general surgery residency. Okay. At Inova Fairfax hospital, which was the hospital where I was a patient at. Right. And like, just to put it in picture, my trauma surgeon, Dr. Bob Ahmed and my vascular surgeon, Dr. D Mukherjee, you know, were, two of the surgeons that trained me, you know, oh, wow. that had actually saved my life. And it's hard to kind of put into words what that experience was like. But so, so I came back and I did that for five years and, and I had during medical school, I'd taken a year off and I spent a year at Johns Hopkins doing a public health degree to really kind of hone in on some of the theoretical and practical aspects of, of public health. And when I, when I finished at Fairfax, I ended up going to the University of Pennsylvania where I spent a, two years doing trauma and surgical critical care. And 
that really, I think, helped kind of solidify my understanding from a systems perspective of how to care for injured patients. And I had a mentor that I had known from Fairfax, Dr. Samir Fakhri, who was the chief down at the Medical University of South Carolina. And he had invited me to, to come down. And the next thing you know, I'm taking a job with him as my first faculty job out of, out of fellowship and training. And Charleston, South Carolina, amazing, um, just amazing, amazing place for all, all variety of reasons. It has a huge gun violence problem, as uh, I'm sure you're, yes. you've heard from what happened this past Memorial Day weekend. Uh, but when I was there, I continued to kind of push myself, Sarah, to really say, like, well, what is, you know, kind of this ability to work at the intersection of medicine and public health and public policy? Like, what am I missing here? And I felt like I was missing the understanding of kind of the public policy realm. And so I ended up taking a sabbatical and spending a year at the Harvard uh, Kennedy School of Government, where I really kind of honed in some of the theoretical aspects of public policy. And that was an amazing year. I, you know, here I am, this like knucklehead surgeon <laughs> that's like, you know, joining all these like super like smart people at the Kennedy School and very kind of diverse, eclectic group of individuals that from all walks of life. And I think there are very few physicians. There's only like, I think, four physicians in our class, but it was amazing. It was an amazing experience. And, and so to get to your question, so shortly after that, I got, when I finished, I got recruited to Hopkins to come be the director of emergency general surgery and, and really kind of, it was a great opportunity for a whole variety of, variety of reasons, including the fact that my family is, you know, an hour and 15 minutes south. And as I've told you in prior conversations, we're very close, no surprise. And so it just worked out for the best. Can I just say completely unrelated how impressive all of this is? Like what a, what a journey and like to have been able to study at Harvard and to go to Israel and to do all of these things and to work with your, the, the doctors and the surgeons who saved your life. Like what an unbelievable experience that is. And oh my goodness. Well, you know, I, I really appreciate that. And I'll, I'll tell you like, just to be completely, you know, transparent, like I, I didn't have those plans. You know what I'm saying? Meaning like, when I decided that I was going to go into medicine, become a trauma surgeon, it's not like I said, okay, like I'm going to do my public health degree. Then I'm going to spend a year at the Kennedy school. Then I'll spend a year in the U S Senate, you know, as a health policy advisor, like yeah. those are never like part of, but I think, I think what happened was Sarah is like, you know, when you're going down this path, if you're willing to be open-minded enough to kind of not be so narrow, like tunnel visioned, you can, you can then sometimes see what exists on the periphery. Right. And if you can see what exists on the periphery, it then lends you to being flexible and opening up opportunities that you may have never even realized how impactful they may be. Yeah. And I'm sure all of those experiences have helped you in not just your work as a surgeon, but in speaking out as part of this is our lane, which we're going to get to. And, you know, just being able to have that bedside manner, you know, patient care experience and to be able to talk to the families and, you know, as a survivor yourself, having that extra level of experience and I guess expertise 
it's probably the wrong word, but you know, it's, it's all those levels and layers and it, it just, it's impressive, Dr. Joe. So, okay. So I want to get into your, your work in advocacy as, you know, in the, the gun violence prevention space, how this is our lane came about. So I'm going to let you take it from there. Yeah. You know, again, this is one of those things where like, like literally, like I I was like sitting, you know, like five feet from where I'm at. I'll I'll never forget it. One uh, evening when I noticed the message from the NRA that essentially, you know, doctors have no role in being part of the solution when it comes to uh, gun violence prevention. And I think, you know, honestly, a lot of us, Sarah, um, in the healthcare profession, and it's not, by the way, just doctors, it's, you know, nurses, including school nurses, right? People like, you know, Robin Kogan and, and, and all sorts of, you know, diverse, you know, folks within, uh, within healthcare that really cut across the spectrum that when they saw those messages, they were incensed. They were like, you know, like, like, are you kidding me? We're like at the center of this problem, meaning we're the ones like taking care of these patients day in and day out. We're the ones having to talk to those families and, you know, explain to them that they're, you know, child that left that morning is never coming home again. And for anyone to think that, you know, we're not part of the solution, either they don't understand the complexity of the public health problem that we're facing, or they don't really want to move the needle forward. Right. And so that's how kind of, again, and it's not just me, so many people from the healthcare space and professionals came together and said, we need to have a voice on this and to stand up on it and just really tell, tell Americans what, what we're experiencing and what we're facing. And so I had, you know, I started that Twitter handle not knowing exactly what was going to happen, to be honest with you. And I think one of the reasons it resonated so much was not because of like we came out there and told people, you know, 40,000 plus people die a year from gun violence. It was because we told the stories. And I think this is a, a very important lesson for all of us, which is, you know, the data and the science, right? I mean, you appreciate that as a teacher, right? It's so important. Yes. And, and kind of practice, you know, evidence-based medicine, right? We all agree that that's critical, but the data and the science doesn't change the hearts and minds of people. And if we're going to make a difference and, you know, really get people to go from you know, value to action, as, as Professor Marshall Gans always says, right, in his public narrative work, if we're going to be able to do that, that's done through emotion, meaning the ability for us to tell those stories and to communicate our experiences and to be able to explain to people why this matters. And, you know, so we did that, I think, pretty well as healthcare professionals, as people that are trusted public messengers. And you know what, like other groups have also done that well, including the teachers, right? And, and so many other, you know, I, you know, sectors within this space that have realized that they, their voice is critical. 
And I think that's such an important message because to solve this, we all have to be part of the solution. Absolutely. And I, you know, with 42 plus thousand followers on your, this is our lane Twitter, like clearly the message is getting out there and you have the support and you have people who stand with you in that lane, just as we do as teachers. And I think I agree with you that people, I'll say they're ignorant, ignorant people don't realize how involved entrenched the medical community is in this public health crisis of gun violence, just like they don't think about or realize how much teachers are involved in all of this. And, you know, not that the focus should be on medicine or education, but we are very important groups that need to be in the conversation in stopping this from continuing. So, you know, the work that you and your group and all of the the doctors and professionals, my cousin is an ICU nurse, um, you know, outside of dealing with COVID and everything else that you all have had to deal with over the past two plus years, this constant barrage of gun violence, I hats off to you, sir, and all of you, because it's, it's a lot. So outside of this is our lane, what is, what has been your I guess your take on advocacy, like I know you're very outspoken on your personal Twitter account and you've, you and I met when we did a PBS NewsHour uh, webinar, webcast, something web, yeah, something, something like that. together. <laughs> but, you know, like, where do you stand in this activist space? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good question. So like, look, like, when I first um, started, you know, going down this path, I really think that things changed kind of, it was around Sandy Hook um, because, you know, for a long time, I didn't realize the power of my own story. And I'll never forget, Sarah, I was, when I was at Penn, we used to give um, these kids, we'd give them a tour of the trauma center and then I would talk to them about gun violence, right? They were like high school kids, 14 to 15 year olds, right? And as you know better than I do, um, you know, they kind of pay attention, but they don't always pay attention. <laughs> that is true. And the first time I did this, I was like, hadn't told them my story yet. And once I did, uh, I'll never forget this, like all of their eyeballs focused on me. And it was um, a, rea a reaction, frankly, that I had never seen before and one that I wasn't expecting. And I mentioned that because I think what I realized at that moment was that I, when I told them my own kind of experience, I went from being someone wearing a white coat to someone that can relate to what these kids were facing in their communities day in and day out. Absolutely. And it just, it just showed me the power of my own story and the ability to work beyond the bedside to impact the lives of other people. And I feel like, frankly, you know, I have both, the opportunity and the responsibility to do that. Now I, you know, for now it's getting a little bit better, but for years, I would tell you, you know, that I would get a lot of, 
you know, I mean, you know, people within healthcare, of course, people that outside of healthcare, but even my own colleagues that say like, hey, like, are you sure you want to be talking about this? It's not really politically correct to talk about this. And, you know, I had a lot of, you know, very different, interesting discussions that continued to lead me to the same answer, which was I had to do what, number one, I thought was the right thing to do. And I had to be able to have the moral courage to do it because if, if me as someone who has survived, you know, gun violence doesn't have the ability to talk about this issue in a way that is, you know, non-judgmental, that's thoughtful, but yet that is very much, you know, stating the facts of what's happening on the ground, then how do we expect anyone else to do that? And so it really almost was kind of this personal responsibility. I felt like, yeah, I have the ability to do it. And I'm also like, have the responsibility to do it. And I have to, I can't just be silent. Being silent, um, you know, is, is being complicit. And so that's what led me to kind of, you know, explore beyond, you know, the bedside and to really try to make people understand the public health issue that, that we're facing in America. I, I agree with that. I, I have used my voice. I have used my platform much in the same way. And I'm sure there are teachers at my school who are annoyed when I am on TV or do interviews and like, you know, nobody said anything to me, but I'm sure it's there. Um, And I certainly don't do it because I like the sound of my own voice because I don't. However, I think these, these are important stories to tell and they need to be heard because again, when you think about gun violence, you don't think about the doctors who are saving the lives and the nurses and, you know, anyone in a medical situation, you don't think about the teachers, even if it's not a school shooting, even if it's just community violence, those kids who come into your classroom, you are the one who talks to them, who helps them, who, you know, gives them snacks, wipes their tears. Like these are the, these are the spaces that you and I and our colleagues, um, you know, where we live and being able to share those experiences to make yourself relatable when you're talking to high school students in your situation. You know, for me to be able to talk to other teachers who have genuine and legitimate concerns over code red drills and what happens if it happens at my school, you know, these are the things that we need to do. And it's exhausting, but it's important. And, you know, that's, that's kind of where I sit with this. It also, and I don't know if this helped you, but talking about it, I found to be very helpful in my healing and moving through my own trauma and PTSD, like being able to talk about my experience to whatever degree wouldn't make 
the other person feel uncomfortable. But, you know, being able to talk about these things and listen to my coworkers and listen to the students' stories, it helped me, in our situation at least, to piece things together and have a broader understanding of how the same events can affect people so differently. Like, have you found that yeah. talking about it has been helpful for you? Yeah, I, w- I would say uh, yeah, I completely agree with you. Now, let me preface this by saying that, you know, different people deal with grief differently. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not saying that we expect everyone to deal with it the way you and I maybe deal with it, which has been by talking about it. And I don't think, honestly, I, it's easy for me to say now years have gone by, but, I, you know, I, don't, I talked about my story early on, but not the way I talk about it now. And I think, you know, time is the healer also uh, in, in many ways. And, and your, your trauma obviously is a lot fresher than, than mine. Um, and so I think, yes, talking about it help, is helpful. And, and I think you're right. I mean, I just, you know, Sarah, like I was, I was listening to this story the other day where like, I'm sure you heard this they talk about, you know, this girl, Maya, that took blood from a dead classmate. Yes, and put it on herself. And put it on herself so that the gunman would think she was dead if if he returned to the room. I mean, I just, I just, I just have trouble even like, you know, imagining what must have been going on through her mind to, to, to be able to do that and the emotional and the mental trauma that that little girl is going to experience for, for so many years. And is this like, is this the best that we can do? Like, I, I can't accept that. And to think that this is happening in America, right. Is just, just just un, unacceptable in so many ways. And I'm so, you know, of course, heartbroken, but I'm also angry. Mm-hmm. I'm angry at, you know, the fact that we are allowing, you know, these senseless tragedies to continue to happen. It's like a bad version of Groundhog Day, you know, wake up and it's like, here we are, you know, yet again. So I think that like, you know, as, as someone who, you know, loves this country so much, I just wish that people, including our elected officials had the political courage to simply do the right thing. And I say do the right thing because, you know, people act like there's so much division on this issue. And I think there is on when you look at social media, but if you talk to the most Americans, most Americans, there's a lot more commonality than dissimilarity. And that's what never gets, you know, past all of the noise. Like, I can't think of anything that 90% (laughs) plus of Americans agree upon, but guess what? Expanding background checks are one of them. So when are we going to move past partisan politics and like, just say, listen, enough's enough. We are not going to accept the slaughter of our children in schools, we're not going to accept, you know, that Americans can't go to a concert without 
the fear of being gunned down or places of worship or the supermarket, you know, it is just absolutely unacceptable. And until all of us decide to become part of the solution and to hold our elected officials accountable, you know, I worry that this is going to be our reality. I agree. And after when when I heard about Buffalo, I was horrified and sad and and all of that. And my cousin is a reporter up there for their ABC affiliate. So I was speaking with him and checking in and making sure he's okay because you know, just like in the medical space and the educational space, the journalist space, you know, they're on the ground and they're seeing all of the the horror and the carnage and all of that. So I was checking in on him to make sure he was okay. And then a few days later, Uvalde happens. And I don't know about you, but sitting there looking at the faces, listening to the stories, seeing the news as it unfolded, it put me right back in like my own trauma. And I, I remember what it felt like to be in my classroom and to have these students looking at me like for answers or what's going on. And like, I couldn't tell them anything because I didn't know anything. And, you know, it's, Every single time there's a shooting, regardless of where it is and, you know, the circumstances surrounding it, it immediately, for me at least, it brings me right back to that, that place. And once I, I get out of that, it makes me, like you said, it makes me angry. And... You know, what what happened at Uvalde, what happened at any school since my school, it shouldn't have happened at my school, but it should have stopped at my school. And it's so important to, you know, look at Buffalo and Pulse and all of these other non-school situations and see how much of gun violence occurs in communities of color and LGBTQ spaces. We're Jewish. My daughter's gay. I fear for her. You know, it's, it's those kinds of things that, you know, you don't want to have to think about, but it's out there. And, oh God, it's, I I know, I I know you see this in your professional life, but It's just, it's everywhere and it's so pervasive in our society and it just, it sickens me, if I can go on a rant for a moment, it sickens me that there are 50 senators and however many congressmen and women who sit on their hands and don't do anything and they're so beholden to the NRA and donations and clout and whatever else they get that they can't or they won't do right by the American people. And people are dying every day. And it just, 
it's it just makes me so sick and angry and sad. Yeah, I, I think uh, those points are spot on. I, look, here's what I would say is, you know, in places like Baltimore, you know, and Philadelphia and Chicago and so many other, you know, urban cities, young brown and black men are being killed on our streets. And, and you know, frankly, like, you know, the discussion always revolves around these mass shootings. I will say the media has done a better job of highlighting, you know, what happens in urban cities, but we have to continue to tell those stories. And I would say, you know, in regards to like the lack of action that we're seeing, um, it's just, it's just unacceptable. And I think part of it is, frankly, that, you know, our country needs campaign reform, because we know money sways how people think. And the other piece, you know, of course, because that's not going to happen anytime soon. And it's obvious why it's not going to happen, because 90% of incumbents get reelected. So why would they change a system that's working in their favor? Right. But that's for a different conversation. <laughs> but the, but, but my, the point is, is though that, you know, I've heard people say recently, oh, the NRA is weak, you know, like, don't be fooled. The NRA is weaker than where they used to be, but they still have hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue. Okay. So like for people, like it just is a little bit frustrating here, people, you know, kind of discounting, you know, the power and the influence that they still have, you know, they're not done, you know, and like, you know, I, I think that, again, this is not about also, by the way, necessarily NRA members, right, and about responsible gun owners, because I think when you look at this issue, the, the biggest problem with the NRA is the fact that the leadership doesn't represent the membership. Absolutely. The majority of NRA owners, actually, they want universal background checks and some of these common sense measures that we talk about. So, you know, it's a very, it's a, it, you got to be careful, you know, how you look at the issue and, and how you talk about it. And I think we as Americans need to do a better job of listening to each other with the intent to understand. Uh, and as Stephen Covey says, not the intent to reply. <laughs> okay. So through all of your professional work and your activism and your advocacy and your tweets and you know I saw that you're going to be on a a webinar or something coming up with Fred Guttenberg and you know through all of that how do you take care of yourself how do you take care of your <laughs> your mental health and no one can see the face you're making right now. <laughs> I know. I was worried you were going to ask me that question. I, but it's important. How do you take care of yourself? You can't take care of other people if you're not taking care of yourself. So, okay. I actually haven't talked about this before um, on a podcast, but I guess maybe today's a day. Uh -oh. So um, I think this is, I think the question that you just asked, when I look at kind of like my, you know, career and my path, I think it's been the biggest um, personal failure that I've had actually, because I think, you know, Sarah, what, what happened was after my injury, I was so motivated to impact the lives of other people that I forgot about myself. And it's very easy to do that. And next thing you know, it's like five, 10 years go by and you're like, whoa, like, you know, what happened to those years? So I've been trying to do a uh, better job 
at taking care of myself. And part of that is, you know, working out, you know, I'm learning how to play the piano again, which, you know, I used to play when I was younger. Um, you know, I, I read stuff for fun. Um, so I do those things and, you know, spend time with friends. I'm a big foodie as I, you may or may not know. So I do those things to help me decompress. Um, and I'm not saying I do a perfect job at it because like this work is important. And like, you know, like all of us in this space, um, you know, we've been going nonstop since last week between our interviews and the discussions and, you know, the organizing, right. It's like a whole, like you could like literally spend a full-time job doing that. And yes. at the same time, you know, I'm you have a, full-time a surgeon. Job. Yeah. And I have a full-time <laughs> job and other responsibilities, not to mention, you know, the third kind of full-time job, which is investing time for your family, you know? And so it's a good reminder. And it's something that I think what you said is something that I've been telling a lot of people, which is if you want to be here for the long run, you got to take care of yourself. Because if you don't take care of yourself, you know, no one else will. And people will continue to take and take and take from you. And you know what? Like the reality is, is that if something happens to one of us, they'll say, oh, yeah, she was a nice gal. He was a nice guy. And the show goes on. Mm-hmm. And the people that are left with that hole are the people in your family that loves you, you know. So, you know, not to get too sentimental at them, but like, I just think like that's like, you know, so important and something that I've been trying to do a better job at. I appreciate your honesty and your candor. I hate when people, like when you use the term self-care and like they roll their eyes at it, like self-care, that sounds so stupid, but it's so important. Like I liked crochet because I'm secretly a 75 year old woman and I like to watch reality TV and I sit there and I turn my brain off after a full-time job as a teacher and a mom and a wife and a GVP activist and everything else, I turn my brain off and I watch The Real Housewives or I'll turn on Bob's Burgers because I love that show. And I will work on a blanket and just unplug. And I should exercise more and I do love food. However, you know, my, my thing is just being in the house, even if we're not all in the same room, but we're all home together and just tuning out and (laughs) watching someone else's life problems on the real housewives at some level. And I, I'm obsessed. My husband will come in the room, see that I have it on. He shakes his head and he walks out. But at some level, I will never be as wealthy as they are. However, it makes me feel better about myself because my life is not that chaotic, as chaotic as it is. But I love it. And that's what I do to take care of myself. Another thing I think- Yeah, puts things in perspective, right? Of course. Yeah, I'm driving a Kia Sportage, not a, you know, Maserati, but, you know, I'm- not all over the blog sphere, like all these other, like the housewives are. Um, I find that a lot of us in this GVP space don't know how to say no. You know, like interviews come up, you were kind enough to give me your time for this, 
But, you know, like since everything happened in Uvalde last week, I can't even tell you, and I know you've gotten requests as well, how many people have emailed and DM'd me on Twitter and, you know, I'm happy to do it and I'm happy to speak and and share, but at some point you have to say no. And that's hard to do when you want to be out there speaking truth to power. Do you find that? A hundred percent. It's like, you don't want to give up those opportunities because you want people to hear and understand your message because, you know, like I think a lot of us, at least that I know in the space, we're so purpose-driven and we care so much about this issue that like, it is our passion. It is our love. And like that same passion and love can also, you know, run you into the ground. And so it comes a point where you have to kind of balance out, you know, what you do. And like, you know, like what I find sometimes, like, you know, if it's just too much or I can't do something, like I know a lot of other great people like yourself in the movement and say, Hey, you know what, like, I can't do this, but here's a great person that can. And like that way they don't feel like, you know, and then, you know, they're willing to come back to you later on. And here's the thing is like, you got to play the long game. Like this issue is unfortunately not going to be solved fast enough to any of our likings. Right. And it's not just about gun violence, any other, other complex issues that maybe people that are listening, that they're passionate about, that they're working on you gotta like remember that like it's kind of those incremental baby steps that that get you to the goal line so to speak so wise words from a wise man um Uh, is there anything else that you want to share that i didn't get to no i look i think you've been as a typical teacher very comprehensive (laughs) um here's here's what i would just say is i would just implore people like you know the burden of this issue can't be on the shoulders of the few. And like, you know, like we all have the ability to, to, you know, step off the sidelines and, and be part of the solution. I think it's so critical if we're going to really make meaningful change, you know, the stuff we've seen at the local and state level has been because people have stepped up and like, you know, have been active participants in their community and we need to push that and make sure that happens at the federal level, because as we know, we live in a country that, you know, the states are porous. And so until we shore up those borders, uh, so to speak, uh, we're going to continue to see this happening, unfortunately. And so I just urge, urge folks listening that just think about what you can do and how you can make a difference. And each and every one of us not only can make a difference, but we must make a difference. Well, Dr. Joe, my friend, Dr. Joe, I just want to thank you for joining us and sharing your story and helping us make a difference and make a change in this space. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It's such an honor to be here. And as always, like, I'm just so proud of you and the rest of the educators. And I know that this is just one more of many interactions we're going to have and and keep up the great work. Thank you. You're welcome.